Revelation chapter 10. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll, and he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Hey, so good afternoon again. It's good to be with you guys. Uh, if I haven't got a chance to meet you, uh, my, my name is Chris. Uh, I'm a church planning pastor here. We started this church like about a few years ago. Um, I feel like on the other side of lockdown, we're kind of like restarting this church, right, uh, over the last several months. Um, but uh, if you're if you're new or new-ish to the church, uh, it might be helpful for you to know that what we're all about is just making making much of Jesus. Uh, we, we love Jesus, uh, we worship him, we believe that he literally changes everything, and so together, our goal is as a church family just to, to grow in what it means to know him, grow in what it means and looks like to, to, to follow him, uh, to worship him, and to display the hope that we have in him to the world. And so, um, if you're new, like uh, my, my wife, uh, beautiful announcement lady, um, like she just said, uh, um, we would, uh, y- y- two options for you today is that you can fill out a welcome card in the back table, uh, and you'll actually, we'll send you home with a free gift uh, uh, on us for you. Uh, but then we are also hosting what we call Starting Point at our house. And um, it's super casual environment. Uh, kids are invited. Uh, we, we usually provide like pizza or tacos and salad and, and things like that. It's a, it's, it's a good time and an opportunity for us to um, not only share about why we started uh, this church, um, why do we have a passion uh, for planning you know, new small churches like this, and uh, where are we going in, in the days ahead, and uh, give you an opportunity to ask questions and things like that. So um, we have a lot to get through, so let me pray for us, uh, and then we'll go ahead and get started. All right? Uh, Father, thank you so much for... Uh, the brothers and sisters of King's Cross Church, I thank you for uh, these men, women, and children who are here uh, this afternoon, here in person, or tuning in online. Um, I pray for our families that are uh, out um, sick with COVID or other sicknesses. I pray that you would just heal them swiftly, God, just take care of them. Uh, I pray, God, that um, as we walk through your word right now, that you would cause these words to come alive to us, that you would maybe just help us experience them, to help us experience these words, uh, maybe like we never have before, that we would experience them as life, spiritual life, spiritual food that nourishes us. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Um, so if you have your Bible, uh, go ahead and grab it, uh, or open your Bible app and turn to Revelation chapter 10. Uh, we're back in the book of Revelation. Uh, if you don't have a Bible uh, or don't have an app downloaded, we'll have the text up on the screen for you. But uh, I'm stoked to be back in this book, right? I'm excited because, uh, especially if you're just joining us, it might help for you to know that our normal flow and rhythm is to go through books of the Bible chapter by chapter and verse by verse. Uh, and we 
haven't been able to do that in the last couple months um, because uh, we, we took a break, right, in December for our Advent series around Christmas time. And then uh, uh, the, for the last few weeks, uh, we've been going through uh, some, some verses and passages that relate to our vision and values, kind of to help recalibrate us for, for 2022. So it's been like two months for us to now dive back into the book of Revelation. And so since it's been a little while, and since uh, some of us here and online are, are new, uh, by way of preface, I want to do sort of a little refresher on the book. All right. Uh, first thing that we need to know about the book of Revelation, which, by the way, is the last book of the Bible, the last book of the New Testament, is that the book of Revelation is, in the fullest sense, a revelation. All right? Right? Like, mind blown. The book of Revelation is a revelation. But what I mean by that is, is for example, the Greek word that is translated revelation is apocalypsis. And apocalypsis literally means unveiling. And so that means we're to look at the book of Revelation as less like world-ending catastrophe, and we're to look at it more like just kind of pulling back the curtain of reality to see the truer realities that, that are going on sort of behind the scenes. Second thing for us to know is that the book of Revelation is a letter. It's a letter uh, that was written by the Apostle John. He was inspired by the Holy Spirit. He saw this vision and was told to write these words down and send it out to a bunch of churches. That's what we're reading, is this letter that John sent to churches in the first century. And he sent it uh, to, for them uh, in, in chapter 1, we're told, so that they can read it out loud and be encouraged by it. Now, now why does that matter? That matters because it tells us that the book of Revelation was written in such a way that, that churches and Christians who received it at that time, they could, they could read it out loud, they could understand what was being said, and apply it to their own lives. Right? So there's this basic Bible principle that we've been repeating throughout this series that we can't miss with this point, and that's that this book cannot mean to us what it never meant to them, all right? The book of Revelation can never mean something for us that it never meant for its original audience in the first century. And this is wildly significant because in the last 150 years, Christians in the West have sort of co-opted this book and turned it into sort of this end times manual where you decode all the, the weird numbers and you analyze all the images, but you do it through the lens of whatever current events are happening at that time. And so that's how you see, like, every couple decades, you got a group of Christians in the West that are like, this is the end of the world, right? Like, like look what it reads, what it says in the, in the, in the book of Revelation. And, and you know, in, in World War II, there was, a, uh, you know, the leaders of, of this one denomination saying uh, that, that uh, Japan was the Antichrist and that, uh, you know, America is the new chosen nation and that Jesus is going to come to end World War II. You fast forward, like, a century later uh, or half a century later, and you that's how you have people today going around calling the vaccine the mark of the beast, right? Look, how self-centered and how narcissistic do you have to be to read the holy scriptures through the lens of your own contemporary current events? And so for us to understand what we're to get from the book of Revelation, we need to know some things about the original context. And here's what we need to know is that, again, I mentioned a moment ago, is that this is uh, written at the end of the first century. They're guessing around 96 AD. And at that time, intense persecution was happening against Christians, right? They were blamed for a lot of things that were going wrong in the Roman Empire, and as a result, uh, they were jailed, they were martyred, uh, people didn't like how quickly Christianity was growing, they didn't know how to make sense of it, and so they'd throw these people in jail, they'd, they'd martyr them, some people got lit on fire, uh, some of them got fed to animals. Most of the apostles, like Jesus' OG group of disciples, most of the apostles had been executed already by this time, like John was one of the only few ones left. And there was a ruler, Domitian at the time, who was going around saying like, hey, look, Jesus isn't Lord, Caesar is Lord, and you guys need to say that. And if you don't renounce your faith, Christians, then, then look, you're going to be next. You're going to get martyred next, just like your apostles were. 
And so to be a follower of Jesus at around this time meant, meant to, to literally put your life on the line. The temptation to give up on your faith or to, to give in to peer pressure would be extremely heavy. So then they received this letter, the book of Revelation, that's unveiling what's happening behind the scenes in the midst of their suffering. And this letter's telling them, hey, hold fast. Don't give up. I know it feels like you're losing, but if you just take a glimpse at what's happening behind the curtain, you'll see that Jesus is still victorious. And so are you by virtue of your faith in him. The third thing that we need to remember with the book of Revelation is that it is prophetic literature. Prophetic literature. Um, this is, you know, books like Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, books like that, uh, that we see in the Old Testament uh, are also include prophetic uh, literature. And uh, basically what we just need to know about that is that prophetic literature often uses imagery and symbols to reveal God's nature and his purposes in history. All right, so that's why there's all these like weird numbers and images and, and, and symbols and stuff like that. So that's sort of our preface, all right? So now where does that bring us to, to this afternoon? Where does that bring us here in Revelation 10? Revelation 10 is in the middle of a stretch of Revelation where we see this, this recurring, repeating cycle of sevens. All right, it began in chapter five when we saw that there was a scroll with seven seals. And then one by one, Jesus, he grabs the scroll, and one by one, those seals are broken by him. And as those seals are broken, the contents of the scroll reveal, uh, or scroll rather, reveal God's plan for human history. And when the seventh seal is broken, that begins the seven trumpet blasts. And one by one, these trumpets sound off, and with each trumpet blast, God's justice comes down <coughs> against his enemies and against the enemies of his people. And so that's where we're kind of at right now. We're in between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. And what you'll see is that chapter 10 and 11 of Revelation, there's really a hiatus between the sixth and seventh trumpet. Um, we kind of saw a similar hiatus between the sixth and seventh seal, if you remember that. And uh, after the trumpets, uh, in a few weeks, we're, that's going to lead us into the seven bowls of wrath. And so it's like seven seals, and then seven trumpets, and then seven bowls of wrath. Now, what's the deal with these cycles of seven? Do you guys remember? The deal with the cycles of seven is that the number seven is John's numeric symbol for completeness, right? For completeness. He just looks at the number seven and he says, you complete me, right? Like that's his number for completeness. And so what he's telling us is we're, what we're seeing is the completion of God's judgment against all unrighteousness. And so with each group of seven, what we see is that the judgments get gnarlier and more severe, Right, The seven judgments with the seals, and then when we moved over to the trumpets, we see some parallels there, but they're a little bit more uh, gnarly, they're more severe. <laughs> and what we have with the sevens is we see both parallel happening, but we also see advancement because they get more intense. And the point of that is to tell us, look, you can't draw this on a chart. You can't draw this on a chart. Like, how do you draw a diagram? How do you draw a timeline that shows parallels and cycles and growing advancements? Like, you, you can't. There's so many dimensions happening there. So it's like, do these things happen in history that we're reading about? Yes, they do. Are they, thank you, Brian, are they happening now? These things that we're reading about, are they happening now? Yes, yes, they are. But will, will some of these things happen in the future? Also, Yes. What we see is a vision of what Jesus has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. We're seeing these three things from heaven's perspective. So it's less like a timeline and more like this layered musical score with multiple different instruments, different sounds, where each new cycle and variation is an echo of the previous cycle and verse 
but adds more and more intensity. So you can sort of like feel the acceleration. That's the sense we're supposed to get as we're reading through these chapters. Look, we mentioned this last week that, like, one, I mean, well, I'll say this first. Like, one of the things that I, I love about preaching through books of the Bible like this is, um, it, and going verse by verse like that is, is we, don't, we don't get the privilege of, of, of skipping the parts that are kind of hard, right? Because they're hard to understand or because they just kind of hit us wrong and like offend us. We don't, we don't get that, that liberty. And some of the stuff that we're, we're looking at in the book of Revelation is, is, is hard. But man, we believe what the Bible says about itself, that the word of God is nourishing for our souls, that in it you find life. And then we said this last week, but this idea, this concept that we're talking about, the judgment of God, man, that's not an easy concept to ponder. It's not one of the most, like, at least from outside, it's not one of the more like admirable of, of characteristics or, or, or of doctrines that we, we subscribe to. But you know what? The judgment and the justice of God is, is good news for, for those who have an ear to hear. It's good news for those who have an ear to hear because, because it tells us our God cares. He cares. He cares so much that he judges evil perfectly in the court of his law. And he keeps and rescues his people, his undeserving people, undeserving people like me. I mean, that's a message that these early Christians receiving this letter needed to hear. That's a message that we need to hear. That in all the world's craziness, and in, in, in all the crazy stuff happening in, in the world as history unfolds, Satan's sin and death will not have the final say. That's good news. And so we find ourselves now in Revelation 10, this sort of hiatus, this intermission between the sixth and seventh trumpet blasts. And here's the big idea that I want us to see in this text. Chapter 10, it shows us the role of the church as God's justice plays out on the stage of history. And the role of the church is this. It's to declare the truth of God as the justice of God plays out on the stage of history. That's the role of the church. So we're going to walk through three points in our text with the rest of our time. I'll try to go through it quickly. Um, But uh, three points are, uh, number one, we're going to see that a brilliant vision is seen. Number two, a bold promise is heard. And number three, a bittersweet Commission is received. Number one, a brilliant vision is seen. Let's start reading in verse one there of Revelation 10. Remember, John is writing here and he says, I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was shining like the sun. His legs were like pillars of fire, and he had this little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. What we see is that John receives a vision here of what he describes as a mighty angel. A mighty angel. So this isn't like some chubby baby cherubim with with wings coming out of its neck, right? Like you've seen those old-fashioned paintings. You know, this angel is colossal. He's huge. And he reflects the glory of God with all these descriptions, just like Moses did when he came down from the mountain. He was radiating with the glory of God. The imagery that John uses to describe this mighty angel should be familiar to those who who know the Bible. For example, it says that this angel, he was wrapped in a cloud, Now, throughout the scriptures, giant clouds were known to accompany the glory of God. For example, when the Israelites moved towards the promised land, it says that the Lord went before them in a pillar of cloud. At Sinai, the glory of God appeared in a storm cloud. When Jesus 
ascended into the presence of God after his resurrection, he was concealed by a cloud. So here, this mighty angel, I mean, he's wrapped in a crowd in a cloud like it's just an evening robe, right? That's, that's how big and glorious this angel is. And, and, and it further describes him as having this, this rainbow over his head. Do you guys remember the last time we saw a rainbow in, in the book of Revelation? It was the vision of the throne room in chapter 4. This rainbow was circling the throne of God. It continues, and it says that his face was like the sun. This reminds us of chapter 1, where John saw, first saw this epic vision of the Son of Man, of the risen Jesus. His face was like, like the sun. So he's using similar language to describe this mighty angel. And then he continues in chapter 10, and he says, his legs were like pillars of fire. I just had this thought. I worked out uh, my legs with Darren Coxware this week, and I literally feel like my legs are pillars of fire. <laughs> but, um, so, but this angel, I mean, like giant pillars, right? Giant pillars of fire. That should remind us of the Exodus, the wilderness wanderings, where the presence of God appeared like a pillar of fire by night. It was a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. See, this angel... This angel is marked by the glory of God. He he demands our attention. He demands an ear just by his sheer presence. He's marked by the glory of God, and he comes to bring the message of God. And in verse 2, it says he had a little scroll open in his hand. Now, this little scroll is the same scroll that we saw in chapter 5 that was previously sealed, but now it's open. It's the scroll that represents God's sovereign plan over all space and time. It's the scroll that represents God's plan for justice, for judgment against all that is evil, for his healing of the nations, for the redemption of his people, for the restoration of the cosmos and for the making right of all that has gone wrong in the world. And you'll remember that the scroll was sealed in chapter 5. It was sealed, and, and, and John was upset because it was sealed. Like when you get home from the clothing store and you, you find out that the new jeans you just bought have the security tags still on them, and you're like, ah, oh, no, I can't wear this yet, right? It's got the security tag. Like John, he, he was so distraught, he wept because he desperately wanted to hear the contents of the scroll of God. But it was inaccessible. It was sealed up tight until, until Jesus appeared. Until Jesus appeared and starts opening the seals one by one. And now the seventh seal is open and the scroll is in the hands of this mighty angel. That's the beautiful vision that John saw. Number two, we see a bold promise that is heard. John hears two things next. Two parts of the same promise. Verse three, he says, and the Angel, he called out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring. So we, like his voice matches his size. Again, demands a response. And it says that when he called out, when this angel called out, the seven thunders sounded. Now, this is new, right? We didn't hear about seven thunders before. So, what are these seven thunders? This is interesting because every time we hear, uh, or that we see rather, the word thunder in apocalyptic literature, it's always a precursor to God's justice. It's always a precursor to his judgment coming down. And so these seven thunders tell us judgment is coming. Notice that these seven thunders are another cycle of seven, right? Right? We saw the seven seals, the seven trumpets. We're going to see the seven bowls in chapter 16. And so these seven thunders are another series of potential judgments. Now, now why do I call them potential judgments? It's because in Revelation 10, they're actually st- 
stopped. Look at verse 4. It says, when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Do not write it down. Remember when the, ceilings, when the seals were broken, when the trumpets blasted with each one of those, a judgment was released. And John would write it down, putting it into motion. But here, a voice, a booming voice from heaven says, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Now, what's going on? Why, why, like, why, why does he say, don't write it down? All right, follow me on this. Do, do you remember the first cycle of judgments uh, that began, I think it was chapter six, uh, the first cycle of judgments with the seven seals? With each judgment, it says how many people were affected? A quarter of the world. A quarter of the world were affected. And did God's enemies repent in response to his justice coming down? No. No, they didn't. And so there's this next cycle of judgments with the trumpet blasts. And with each judgment, how many people were affected there? Now the number we're told with the trumpets is, is a third. A third of creation. And was that enough to produce repentance in God's enemies? The end of chapter 9 tells us, no, it wasn't. No, they were still hard-hearted. And so now... Now you've got these seven thunders that sound one after the other, seven in a row, thunders sounding. How many people are affected by that? I mean, we don't know because, because it's revoked, it's withdrawn. What happens next that we'll, we'll see later with the bulls is that not a fraction of the world, but all the created world is going to fall under God's judgment. But do you notice this pattern here? How the fraction increases? It's a bigger and bigger chunk, a bigger and bigger slice. I mean, if we follow the literary rhythm and pattern, then the next fraction, which should be the seven thunders, would be half of the created realm. So with the seals, it was a quarter. With the trumpets, it was a third. And so it should, it should if we're to continue with that, that rhythm, then the thunders should be half the created realm. But because of the hardness of people's hearts, and because people were unwilling to repent in spite of the growing intensity, God just says, you know what? Seal them up. Seal them up. He withdraws these seven thunder judgments and he moves right on to the bold judgments where everyone will suffer judgment, taking us to the very end of human history. And man, we, in, in chapter five, we saw that the slitting open of the seals inaugurated the contents of the scroll. When the scroll was open, when the seals were broken, the contents of the scroll were then free to come to pass. And so if we're sticking with that image, then to seal up what the thunders have said is to prevent them from happening all together. What are we to take from that? What we're to take from that is that, is that time and again, and again and again, people are given opportunities to repent. Time and again, and again and again, they refuse to. This is a daunting, unsettling reality. Eugene Peterson soberly puts it this way. He says, we do everything we can to make light of judgment. He's criticizing us there. We do everything we can to make light of judgment. We use every stratagem we can find to avoid dealing with the consequences of sin, but, but God will not let us off. He will not indulge our inattention. He will take us seriously. 
However, practice we become at tuning out sounds that we do not want to hear, including the sound of God's displeasure at sin, God finds new ways to penetrate our defensive deafness. We could look at the trumpet blasts as sounding alarms intended to rouse the world to attention. With each judgment is a warning to mankind to call us to repentance. And that's what the terrifying scene in, in, in Revelation 8 and 9 were all about. It was to call us to, to run from our sin, to, to run from our idols, and to run to safety in Jesus, to run to life in Jesus. I think this is what C.S. Lewis was getting at when he said that God whispers in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. Can you hear the call? Can you hear the call of God as his justice works its way out throughout history? It is amplified from every corner of the globe. The call of God is amplified from every corner of the globe. Everything that is ever made to say, something's not right, something's wrong, Something's off in this world. Things aren't what they should be. Everything that makes us think and say these things, everything that breaks our hearts and turns them upside down, through all of those things, God is pleading to his creatures, saying, don't ignore me. Don't ignore me. The reason that you're so unsettled is you weren't made for a fallen world. You were made for a perfect eternity with me. So don't ignore me. Don't ignore my ways. You're headed to your own destruction. Turn around. And the tragedy, the tragedy of the trumpet blast is that not everyone repents. And so by sealing up the thunders, it's as if God says, all right, then, the time to repent has come to pass. It was here, but now it's gone. Time to get on with it. Verse 5 says, The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, he raised his right hand to heaven, which is the posture of taking an oath. That's where it comes from. You raise your hand up to God. Verse 6 And the angel swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. So he's swearing an oath to God. And what is the substance of this oath? That there would be no more delay. Forget the thunders. Let's get on with it. Let there be no more delay. Verse 7 says, But in the days of the trumpet called to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. And what is he referring to? The mystery of God is what was previously concealed in the scroll. The mystery of God is the contents of the scroll. It's the remainder of what we're going to read about in Revelation. It's God's sovereign purposes to vindicate his people, to restore the cosmos, the creation, and to put an end, a final end, to all that is wrong, all that is evil, all that is unjust, everything that is corrupt, everything that is wrong will finally come to an end. I want you to notice that in verses 2, 5, and 8, which we haven't quite gotten to, but in 2, 5, and 8, all those verses mention both the sea and the land. 
speaking about the angel and how he's got one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. Now, listen, this point, it seems subtle, but it's too important to ignore. Especially in, in the New Testament, something's repeated three times. That tells us it's, this is an important point. Beyond communicating his colossal size, it gives us a picture of God's sovereignty and his dominion over all things. I mean, this is God's mighty angel. This angel swears an oath to God. And so if this angel strides over sea and land, how much more sovereign and mighty is our God? There's more to this. As we'll see later in chapter 12 and 13, where you're going to be introduced to three beasts. There's going to be a great dragon, which typifies the devil. And then there's going to be two beasts. One of those beasts is called the beast of the sea. And the other is called, you guessed it, the beast of the land. Now, why is that significant? It's because, look, it tells us that if these two beasts are working for the devil, and this angel, God's mighty angel, strides over the sea and the land, what does that tell us? It tells us, yes, there's a beast of the Antichrist. Yes, there's a beast of a false prophet. But an even bigger yes, there's a sovereign God. There's a sovereign God that these beasts got nothing on. So when the voice comes down and says, there will be no more delay, we know that there will be no more delay. The sovereign justice of God cannot be thwarted by anyone. That's why the angel swears an oath like he does. He swears an oath by the one who is forever and ever and who created all. He's giving credence to God's eternality and to God's role as the creator of everything. By swearing an oath in that way, I mean, this angel, this mighty angel, he's dropping a massive truth bomb that our God, our God is supreme over all time and all creation, which includes, by the way, the beast of the sea and the beast of the land and even the devil himself. Look, man, when, you, when you come to terms with this, that we don't live in this dualistic world of good versus evil, and we kind of wonder, like, who's going to win? That there's just one God who rules over all and everything else. When you get that, that'll comfort your soul. That's comforting news. That nothing, not even evil, can escape his sovereign dominion, man, that truth will transform your life. That truth will infuse you with spiritual vitality. That truth is the key to how you digest the news, how you deal with, with life's anxieties and worries, how you see the world. The God who promises the God who promises to put an end to evil cannot be competed with. The God who puts an end to evil and suffering and sin and death, he cannot be competed with. And what he promises, he will fulfill. And to the first Christians receiving this letter, man, what comfort those words must have been for them. What comfort these words can be for us. We witness to the gospel. The world persecutes us. In some places, even today, even kills us because of that. God, he's going to judge those enemies. He's going to take us to heaven. You might feel defeated now. You might feel like you're losing now, but you, 
will be vindicated by his hand in his time. This is a promise grounded in the sovereign power of God himself. That's the bold and beautiful promise that John hears. And now, number three, a bittersweet commission is received. Verse eight says, then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again saying, go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. I mean, John here must have been like totally terrified at the sight of this angel, probably wouldn't even consider doing that if it weren't for this divine command from heaven. And then verse nine, he says, so when I went to the angel and told him to give me the, the little scroll, or so I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it, eat the scroll. The word in the original Greek there, it means literally to devour, consume all of it. He says, it will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth, it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll, John says, from the hand of the angel and ate it. And as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. What in the world, right? <laughs> Again, apocalyptic literature uses imagery and symbols to tell us something about God and his purposes and how he works in history. And the way that we know how to interpret those symbols is by looking how those symbols are used elsewhere in apocalyptic literature. And this image is ripped straight out of Ezekiel, the beginning of Ezekiel in the Old Testament. In Ezekiel chapter 2, Ezekiel is handed a double-sided scroll. Does that sound familiar? He's handed a double-sided scroll, and God tells him, eat it. In other words, you got to internalize this message. Ezekiel's a prophet, but God's saying, look, you're not just like this lifeless puppet. No, I want you to eat the scroll so that when you preach, your heart is like my heart. Because you've so internalized the scroll of my sovereign plan. And how does it taste to Ezekiel? Ezekiel 2 tells us that it tasted to Ezekiel like honey. Again, sound familiar? And look, my guess is that some of you, some of you know this, this feeling, how God's word can be sweet to the taste. I mean, maybe that's why you're here, right? You want the word to be opened. You love that we go verse by verse, but you, you want the word of God because it, it, it's sweet to the taste, You've experienced what David said in Psalm 19 when David said, the word of God is sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. You know how the word of God can comfort, how it nourishes, how it strengthens, how it galvanizes. Do you know what Ezekiel's message was? What his job as a prophet was after he ate this scroll? He was commissioned to tell God's people that God is good and he wants your heart. But look, judgment will come if you don't repent from the shenanigans you guys are doing. And God told Ezekiel, look, you're going to preach this message, and the people are going to be hard-hearted, and they're not going to respond. And it'll go from sweet to bitter for you. This is what John is experiencing. This is what John is experiencing. You see, because the trumpet blasts alone, just by themselves, the trumpet blasts alone cannot bring about repentance. They can bring confusion. They can bring despair. They can bring anguish. They can bring increased rebellion and increased hardening towards God. What enables the blare of the trumpets to bring about repentance is preaching. The word. The gospel, what brings about repentance is being told that the judgments are just warnings designed to bring us back to God. See, that was John's role 
as an apostle to receive this message and to give this message to the churches. That was his role, and he gave that role to the churches. And that role has been passed down to us. Remember our big idea, that the role of the church is to declare the truth of God. The role of the church is to declare the truth of God, the beauty of God's sovereign plan, as God's justice unfolds all around us on the stage of human history. See, this, this is God's world. We live in God's world. This isn't our world. This is God's world. And if we violate him in his world, man, that's, that's going to come back at us somehow. That'll turn back on us. John's told, man, you got to warn people. You got to tell them where to find salvation. You got to tell them about Jesus. That is a bittersweet commission that John received. Verse 10 describes how God's words, especially his words about justice and mercy, his words about wrath and love, those words that we see in all the imagery in Revelation, as well as all throughout the Bible, those words are both sweet and bitter. His word is sweet to us and that we long for his justice to come down and put an end to evil and suffering. And we're told that, yes, God will do that. He's promised it. But at the same time, that word is is sobering and bitter. Because the more we let that word sink in, the more we realize how terrifying his judgment is for those who don't trust him, for those who won't turn, for those who don't know the love and grace that is freely offered in Jesus. And so while we're comforted to know that his justice will reign, we're also, we also know it's terrifying to think about what it means for those who don't know Jesus Christ as Lord. Verse 11, John says, I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. This is a way of saying that he must take the prophetic message of the gospel to every area of earthly existence. You'll notice that that phrase, peoples, nations, languages, kings, will show up again and again from here on in Revelation. And from here on, it's going to refer to that slice of humanity that still remains defiant to the God of the gospel. You see, John's mission, John's commission is to declare a message to people from every sphere of influence, peoples, nations, languages, and kings, knowing that it will bring life for God's elect, but will also sound the theme of judgment for God's enemies. The gospel, the gospel of God's grace is a beautiful sound to our ears. Only after we understand the reality of God's wrath against our sin and what Jesus did in our place. The gospel is not primarily to answer to our low self esteem, it's not primarily to answer to an empty bank account. It is primarily the answer to the very real problem and dilemma of a judgment that is both deserved and imminent. It's coming. Is John giddy about that? Like, God's enemies are going to, you know, they're going to be judged. Like, is he giddy about that? No, it makes him sick to his stomach. He says it's bitter. It's hard. It's painful. But he will not pull back and compromise on the truth, the fullness of God's truth. 
The preaching ministry of John reminds us of a better preacher who was even more compassionate. One who was acutely aware of the judgment that would fall on unrepentant sinners. It reminds us of Jesus Christ himself. During his ministry, when Jesus looked over the city full of spiritually lost people, he wept. We're told he wept bitterly. He wept bitter tears over that city. Because he knew it was filled with people who would reject him. And therefore would soon be met with the justice of God. On the cross, on the cross, Jesus, our Jesus, he absorbed, absorbed the righteous judgment of God so that rebellious sinners like them, those people in the city, so that rebellious sinners like us could have eternal life with him, eternal joy with him, Even though he was innocent, purely innocent, Jesus was not spared from God's judgment. He wasn't spared from God's judgment so that we could be spared. Jesus took the bitter cup of God's wrath and he drank of it. He drank from it so that we could drink from the fountain of God's grace. So let's let's be a people that just repent of our complacency. Repent of our complacency. Let's, Let's plead for mercy for those who haven't tasted the grace of God. And let's commit to declaring the sweet wonders of his glorious grace and the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.